0: Welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Hoover Harris, editor of DegreeOrNotDegree.com. And with me today is Dr. Sean Gallagher, who is the founder and executive director of Northeastern University's Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy. And he is executive professor of educational policy there. He's here to discuss his recent, very interesting book, The Future of University Credentials. Sean, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Could you please start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and where you live and where you work? Sure. Um, I'm based in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I've spent most
1: of my career here. Uh, And for the last 18 years or so, I have focused on analyzing what I refer to as the the higher education market or the higher education ecosystem. Over the last decade, from a a university and academic base at Northeastern University, where I worked leading our strategy office for many years. Uh, And prior to that, uh, I got my start in this field as an analyst and researcher and consultant at a company uh, called EduVentures. And so prior to the current wave of interest in innovation and, and technology in higher ed, I think I, I was very lucky to kind of begin my career in that space and to specialize in, in tracking uh, what's happening out there in terms of um, higher education policy and the development of, of uh, commercial providers, university innovations, and, and things like that. And so it's it's a pretty broad generalist view that I take. And a particular focus and uh, the focus of my uh, doctoral work, which I guess I started uh, six or seven years ago at this point in terms of a research project. But but my consulting and uh, work prior has been focused on employers and the changing job market and specifically mapping that to what does it mean for a higher education system? What does it mean for colleges and universities?
0: Well, that's all very timely stuff, getting more timely by the day, I would say. How did that prompt you to move into your book, your work on the future of university credentials? What prompted you to get that book started?
1: Uh, well, looking at how things were developing, I guess this goes back to maybe 2011. I think 2011 or 2012 was was what the New York Times coined uh, the year of the MOOC. Massively open online courses, a lot of talk about disruptive innovation in higher education, was crossing over from the the trade press and uh, the channels that that I work in, as part of my job, and into you know the the top headlines in the consumer media and you know pronouncements from. Top, you know, top government leaders, et cetera, were they, they were all of a sudden focused on these topics. Not that they weren't before, but it was becoming a really hot issue. This question of credentialing and what what skills and credentials are needed for people to advance in the job market, et cetera. Uh, and I think even prior to that, the the two thousand seven two thousand eight recession really put job market outcomes with respect to college and university education, and of course the important debate about cost levels and debt loads, etc. All of this was coming into focus. And so I felt there was a need to provide some evidence-based research and to actually talk with employers and understand what are they focusing on? How are their needs changing? Uh, how do they value educational credentials uh, and develop some actual data uh, and some nuance on this, on this really important question? Whereas a lot of um, A lot of the claims that were being made and and continue to be made in some circles are just based on ideology or uh, speculation, uh, which I'd summarize as on one side, you have uh, Silicon Valley and tech firms and and the would-be disruptors, many of them doing great work and interesting things. They tend to take the position that we need to blow up college and colleges are, are failures and they're not producing the right outcomes and we need to move to... Commercial alternatives—that's one end of the spectrum, and a kind of an extreme end of the spectrum, in some cases—and then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, you have the traditionalists and, and the status quo, uh, and many in academia who don't necessarily see or want to drive a desire to change, and they sort of look down at these, you know, these these outside developments. And I think the reality is is definitely in the middle. You know, there's there's elements of each argument that are that are pertinent and, and that are happening. Uh, but we really need to study this in order to make sense of where everything's headed and what the value of, of degrees and new forms of credentials is, uh, which I should also mention is that uh, we've had a burst over the last four or five years of innovation and new credentials being developed, the, the micro masters, the nano degree, uh, Etc. And those are things that consumers, potential students, and also employers, you know, previously didn't have to uh, interpret or assess or have available to work with.
0: Well, I think it's great that you do spend so much time considering the employer's perspective because I, I think that has been a gap in these conversations. As you suggest, they might get a passing reference to having a skills need or a, there being a skills gap or wanting to see a certificate or a degree, but beyond that. I haven't seen much commentary on what employers are really looking for. And, and you very much factor their perspective into your book. I suppose at this early point, we should define terms, specifically credential. So just to set a baseline, what is a credential by your definition?
1: Yes. Uh, well, my book focuses on what I call university credentials or, or, or higher education credentials. And that's a, a, a broad category that includes degrees. It includes uh, certificates certificates. Uh, Some institutions award what you might call a a diploma. Sometimes it depends on the level of study. Also, there are various non-credit certificates and credentials that colleges and universities are offering. And that world is intersecting with the world of professional credentials, where you have various certifications and certificates and licenses that are issued by associations, technology firms, government bodies. So the importance of the word uh, credential... Uh, in that construct is sometimes and often it comes out of a higher education institution, but not always. Credentials are what uh, document your professional competency and your learning and uh, what employers often turn to in their evaluation uh, of your candidacy in the hiring process. So it's really a look at how do these credentials, how do these degrees and certificates and other awards factor into the hiring and the promotion and the learning and development that employers are doing. Uh, Employers, of course, are most often corporations, but also certainly include nonprofits, government, uh, etc.
0: In the book, you really document the relationship between employers and credentialing institutions and the interdependence there. How deep does that run?
1: It, It runs pretty deep. Most of our What's today a, a knowledge-driven economy in the U.S. and increasingly worldwide is quite reliant on um, the talent that comes out of colleges and universities and the credentials that colleges and universities issue, mainly degrees, as signals. Uh, and there's some problems associated with that in, in terms of equity uh, and also the the bluntness of sort of what a degree stands for versus being able to drive at specific competencies and skills and outcomes but there's also a lot that uh that, that credentials tell us that employers do very much still value so the one of the major uh themes out there has been the idea that uh degrees are are, are declining in value uh i think at worst the the economic value of degrees is uh is flat relative to to prior years. and In certain cases, when you segment the market, the value of a graduate degree is is increasing even as it becomes increasingly popular. Uh, The economy is demanding much more lifelong learning and continuous skill development. That can come through degrees. It doesn't always have to come through degrees. We have new short-form kinds of credential and certificate and learning that are becoming Increasingly popular, especially through online course providers. And when you look back historically, uh, this happens in terms of um, nations and, and also, you know, certainly in, in various states and economies when you get down to a more micro level. The story over the last century and over the last 10 or 20 years, and it's something that's accelerating today, is of a growing reliance on uh, education and post secondary learning and credentials. Uh, so so what happened in the early 1900s was high school education became more universal. I, I would say the early through the mid 1900s, we, we had that movement and then more people were continuing to college, which expanded, especially with the GI bill. And then as bachelor's degrees became common and the knowledge and service economy developed, we've seen 30 or 40 years with a particular acceleration recently uh, of people then continuing on into graduate programs. And so the the global market is continuing to value and demand these credentials.
0: It surprises me that culturally and from an employment standpoint, we are still so committed to those rather traditional degrees, in spite of some of the innovations that you mentioned. On the one hand, we have this culture that celebrates the high school or college dropouts, like the Steve Jobses and the Bill Gateses, and we we love Silicon Valley startup culture, and we have all these technical alternatives to traditional educations, beginning with YouTube and then going on to more sophisticated things like Coursera or Lynda.com. But you make the point very well, I think, in the book that employers are still very much inclined to use those traditional bachelor's degrees or master's degrees as screening signals when they hire. Why do you think we've been so slow to evolve there?
1: Well, I think the assumption on the part of the general public and uh, those in the college and university world is often that the way employers do this and the way employers set their hiring qualifications and develop their job descriptions is optimized and is, is really rigorous. But in fact, when you dig into that, and that's been a lot of the focus of my my research for the book and, and my doctoral work, et cetera, employers actually aren't yet terribly sophisticated in many cases uh, when it comes to that. You know, the, the difference between education and experience, which are kind of the two fundamental things you'll see in a given job posting, most of the time, in addition to specific skills and so on, that, that's fairly fluid. And so sometimes the degree or credential is, is a uh, proxy for, for experience. And when we're talking about degrees, especially, despite their flaws and faults, um, you know, in certain cases... They tend to represent many years of study, right, um, in, a, in a pretty comprehensive curriculum. Even if we say for a given job, only 32%, I'm just making up a number, uh, was relevant to that job, uh, that's still some pretty significant learning that, that likely occurred. Relative to the new credentials and the innovation that have been happening are uh, much, much shorter forms of, of learning or program, and often very technical and very specialized. So it's not the broader-based communication, critical thinking, writing part of what employers value in credentials as well. In addition to the hard skills and the competencies, is the the acculturation that that happens. You know, your ability to collaborate with people and um, sort of. Uh, I have some quotes in the book about you know completing a, a long-term goal. Right there, are, there are aspects of what it takes to. Earn a credential uh, that employers value from from sort of a sociological perspective, as much as the the hard skills and, and what comes out of the degree.
0: So there's a duration component to the signaling, as well as a broader learning component to that that degree completion. That makes sense. Let's talk about some of the possible variations or, or alternatives or disruptors some of which you've already mentioned which are out there and they've actually been out there for a fairly long time when you think about something like online education but we've had the MOOCs that you've mentioned there are employer screening tests maybe I don't know if those are legitimate or not uh, boot camps what, what are some of the most significant disruptors out there right now or the ones that seem most most viable and what interests you about those as we speak today?
1: Sure, there's a, there's a number of things happening. Um, given what we've discussed, one important thread is uh, what I would refer to as the skills based hiring movement, and mm-hmm. that is being fueled by corporate strategies. In some cases, you know, foundation and, and public policy uh, pushes for for more equity uh, and also for innovation. Where a handful of companies, I would say, uh, and, and various associations and groups are making commitments to really move beyond this reliance on the degree and to get more sophisticated about how they view credentials in hiring. Um, The most prominent example of that is probably IBM, which has what they call their new Collar initiative, which was launched by their CEO. But at the same time, when you look at IBM's job openings, uh, you'll find probably that the vast majority of them or, or many of them still prefer, if not require, degrees. Uh, yet at the same time, they're recognizing, especially at certain levels of their workforce and in certain high demand areas, uh, that degrees aren't a necessity. And so they're very proactively opening up that channel for people that that might not have a degree uh, and breaking that down. So that's one thing that's happening. Something else that's that's pretty early, and there are some um, legal uh, barriers around how it might be implemented, uh, barriers might not be the right word, but uh some some challenges and some conservatism in corporate culture in terms of getting this done and not running afoul of uh, equal opportunity regulations, which are very important. And and that is pre hire assessment and testing. Uh, so one of the things I touch on in the book, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I did uh, interview a few experts uh, for it <clears throat> prior to about 1970. I think it was around 1970 when there was a, a significant uh, Supreme Court case. Which was also a time, by the way, when uh, bachelor's degrees were a little bit more rare in our economy. You know that was sort of the beginning of the, the baby boomers graduating from college, um, whose parents were educated by the GI bill, et cetera, and the real expansion of the, the market for, for college degrees. Prior to, to around 1970, there was much more direct uh, testing uh, done and, and a little bit less of reliance on the degree. But this uh, the Supreme Court case, which I think was uh, uh, Duke Power uh, versus Griggs, or Griggs versus Duke Power. The outcome of that case uh, resulted in the finding that em- employers had to be very careful about testing people, and that how they do it could be discriminatory. Testing has to be job related and directly mm-hmm. mapped to the job. And after kind of forty years of that that policy being in place and and those constraints existing. Uh, which I I think are an important development right now today with technology and our ability to do online tests and our ability in terms of the, you know, the, the, what's been learned about assessment and uh, personality and skill, et cetera, the, the capability or the promise of, of testing things in certain ways, I think has gotten a little bit more sophisticated And where we're seeing it most is in the coding field and in computer science. It's become very common for a a prospective software developer to have to complete some kind of challenge uh, or to actually walk through a scenario uh, where they code and the employer judges them on that. That is very clearly directly job-related. So we're in the early stages of it, but I think we will continue to see more direct testing and assessment. Which will in some ways replace in a, in a fraction of the market the value of the degree and the reliance on the degree in, in those cases.
0: As far as online education, whether it's a MOOC, one of those massive open online courses, or a branded course provided by Stanford or MIT, one of those top tier courses, even, is it fair to say? I know this is a generalization, but isn't there still a stigma attached to online education in the eyes of employers? And it, it sounds like it's still going to take. Years or decades for that stigma to erode away
1: the the perception of online education is changing, and it does depend on the the type of program and credential um, I think the stigma is fading away. that's one of the things that we're we're measuring. This has kind of always been the case, but especially at the graduate level, so for someone's more advanced uh, credential or qualification, online education is is much more accepted in terms of uh, on the employer side somewhat less so for bachelor's degree programs because that's more someone's initial qualification and whether they're right or wrong uh, about their biases and preferences here historically many employers have, have valued people who have done more of a traditional educational experience rather than you know something that was online or non-traditional although at the same time I think that's changing a bit and this is a good thing where employers do really respect and, and appreciate in some cases, Really value the the grit and perseverance and everything that it takes to earn a degree later in life as an adult or part time while working, uh, etc. That's that's one of the things I've definitely found in my interviews. Um, but we're now in 2018, about exactly 20 years into the development of the online degree market, and the key development over the last five, six, seven years has been now the. Very top universities for a number of years, uh, Stanford, MIT, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, etc. They have been offering online credentials and online degree programs. And so, compared to 15 years ago, when it was um, dominated by the University of Phoenix and non-traditional institutions, online institutions that maybe didn't even have a campus today, it's it's what you could really argue are higher quality institutions and better respected institutions that are offering online degrees and online credentials. And as a result, a a lot of that stigma is um, fading away.
0: Well, with respect to online education and the university perspective, I'd love to hear your take as a strategist on these things, on what universities should do (laughs) regarding online education, what their approaches should be. Are universities really at odds with online education? Does that pose an existential threat? And are they threatened by the scalability of online education if it's done well? So for example, let's say MIT has a nice intro to physics course. You don't need 500 other universities or a thousand other universities offering intro to physics. Maybe you need 10 others or a dozen others to get some variety, but is that scalability really threatening and do these online courses once they become more accepted and they're better branded and better produced, is that going to damage at least the middle tier higher ed institutions and perhaps even put some of them out of business?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think it's happening yet, but over the long term, it will uh, damage the uh, certainly the lower tier. I think that's already happening in some ways. Uh, when you look at the, it's it's still small numbers, but the growing number of colleges around the country- uh, usually small private colleges that are being forced to close. Almost without exception, uh, none of them have been active in the online market. They're residentially based. They might be in a rural area where there aren't many students. And uh, on the flip side, you have some examples of institutions that are, that are remote uh, and weren't especially well-known, but they've been able to develop you know, a real sustainable uh, customer base, I'll call it, through online education. Uh, so We're still in the early days of it. It's, it's not happening overnight, but very slowly, there's a shift in the market. If we think broadly about this whole space, uh, including non-traditional providers, including the LinkedIn's of the world and, and others, most of the revenue and most of the demand is still very much in uh, the offering of traditional degrees. So at this stage, and probably over the next five years or so plus, online education is an important and core vehicle for colleges and universities. In fact, of all graduate education in the United States, so this is every master's or doctoral degree that anyone's pursuing, whether it's you know a traditional face-to-face program or an executive MBA, uh, one third of that today is delivered online or in a blended format. Uh, and I think when we include undergraduate level education as well it's about twenty five percent so there's been a slow and steady taking of share by online education delivery uh, and that's continuing and you could argue, will that ramp up a bit and that's that's very i think useful to universities and it's useful to people that need access uh, to these degrees and credentials. That said, uh, back to your question uh you can actually see in some hard data from the u s Department of Education. That there's a consolidation of market leadership. So the big on the big universities with an online focus are growing at a more significant rate than the others. Uh, I think the figure is if you look at the the top 100 largest institutions by online enrollment, and there's about 2.5. No, sorry, over three million. I think uh, online students in the United States. Uh, the top 100 institutions today have uh, something like a 42 to 45% share of all the enrollment. And that's grown wow. a couple of percentage mm-hmm. points compared to, to three or four years ago. That could, that could change, uh, but I, I think the large institutions that are very active in this and investing in this and putting a lot into branding and student support and technology uh, will probably continue to win. All, all of that said, what does that mean for your typical kind of middle-of-the-road college or university What's worked over mm-hmm. the last ten years has been, okay, well, let's put our MBA program online, uh, and that will that will lead to growth. Uh, it's It's not going to be simple uh, or rather that simple anymore because there are now literally thousands uh, of options that people can turn to. So all of this is an example of moving toward what's what's a much more competitive uh, higher education field. You know, competition has been defined historically by geography. And you've had some prestigious institutions where people travel out of state, you know, to attend full time. But especially if you're an adult, which is uh, one of the growing and more significant segments—professionals uh, and people who are working—to complete a degree or get a graduate degree. Historically, you were, you know, your only options were the institutions immediately in your backyard that you could commute to. And now, here we are in a world where it is very seamless in terms of. Your online options that may be in the US or even abroad, and the the campus-based options that are down the road.
0: So it sounds like we might be in a world where the rich get richer as far as those who have the best brand names and are at the forefront of preparing these online courses. And meanwhile, perhaps the lower tier institutions will be incentivized to cling to the old credentialing model as long as they can, which fortunately is still very ingrained for the moment, as you document. And then perhaps shift to some sort of hybrid online and in person offering. I always wonder what these huge campuses with their huge physical plants are going to do as online gets greater traction. What do you do with all those big classrooms? I, I guess you come up with some way to bring the students in for some sort of personal interaction before they go back to their monitors from from wherever they are. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I wonder, even if for the the ones at the forefront of online education. If eventually they will just be contributing to the commoditization of the information. You know, there's the philosopher who said information wants to be free and tends to, to be free. I wonder if this can ultimately be monetized for the long term.
1: That's a great point. Uh, indeed, what we're starting to see happen is some real new business models and some real new price points. And we'll have to monitor carefully what does this mean for Colleges and universities, and what, what does it mean for learners or consumers? But I think one of the most important innovations, if we can, or one of the most impactful innovations and changes, if we can think about things in terms of a spectrum again, is we have traditional degrees, which tend to be long and uh, higher priced on one end. And then on the other end, we have uh, new kinds of credentials and short form online learning often and sometimes free, uh, sometimes not for credit, sometimes for credit. And what's happened with this online degree market is you now have more than a handful of examples, I think at least 10 or 15, many of them with uh, Coursera, others with uh, edX, where a traditional degree, the same credential, importantly, you're still getting a master's, And I think in most, if not all cases, it's the identical masters to the one you get on campus in terms of what you put on your resume and the diploma that hangs on your wall. Using artificial intelligence and using the scale of MOOCs or these massive open online course platforms, there's a blending of actual instructor interaction and and support and interaction with fellow students, et cetera, and automatic grading and and, things that you can do in more of a self-paced way. And so these things are existing in the middle, and they're being offered at a lower price point than the traditional degree. So you can get a master's in computer science or an MBA for maybe $20,000 or $30,000 total rather than $60,000. And I've compared this sometimes to how companies sometimes have a family of brands like um, Banana Republic, Gap, and Old Navy. And and so, what we're seeing is Mm -hmm. sort of the, you know, if the traditional executive education MBA program that cost $100,000 to complete is the Banana Republic version and the MOOC was the old Navy, now you're having this new kind of gap offering that's for the mass market and it's at a lower price point. And these programs at the University of Illinois. At, at Georgia Tech, uh, and, and some other ones that have just launched uh, via Coursera, the University of Michigan, and I think the University of London, if I have the institution right, they're, they're seeing growth in terms of thousands of students and tens of millions of dollars in revenue. And so that's a, that's a very interesting development.
0: I hope that the humanities don't suffer in the midst of these transitions. That, that's one other thing that occurred to me as I was thinking about these credentials in the online education. It seems like online lends itself to the more technical training You know, computer development, web design, even physics, engineering. But it's much less conducive, I I think, at this point at least, to studying literature or sociology or poli sci. And certainly it lacks a good feedback mechanism for writing and and discussion. There are probably, you know, approaches to that that I'm not aware of, but I'm worried about the poor humanities, which are already getting beat up right and left, uh, that, that all this technological disruption may favor the more technical fields just because there's more of a natural fit there. Do you share that concern?
1: Sure. And, and you know one of the most interesting things, sometimes it's a bit of a paradox is when you whether you dissect job postings at the scale of millions and find patterns in them or interview employers, mm-hmm. uh, or do case studies of, of people's personal experiences, whatever approach you want to take to, to gather this data, what you'll consistently find is that communication, critical thinking, problem solving, Writing skills; uh, those are the things that are hardest to find and most valued uh, by employers. And, and traditionally, you get those through often studies in, in the humanities and the liberal arts. And what they really need, in addition to yes, needing more data scientists and software developers, they need those uh, technical individuals who can lead a team and and write a memo uh, or think about you know the ethics of AI or or policy and strategy. And so it's, it, it, it's tricky because um, in the overall higher ed market, with, without regard to online, um, there's been a kind of multi-year, multi-decade, clear shift in terms of what, uh, what students are pursuing away from the humanities uh, and toward more professional fields. I think that's only continuing. And certainly when the, when the frame of thinking is new forms of credentials and how this ties to the job market, the growth there is certainly in these in these technical disciplines. That's that's where most of the uh, the skills gaps are. Um, so what I'm watching for is, you know, do we see examples where there are more um, humanities oriented credentials uh, or or certifications and things that emerge that uh, document and and or it's not just about documentation; it's about actual you know, actual uh, learning and, and skill development that people get by, by pursuing these things that, that are more related to those, um, those other fields.
0: Well, Sean, in closing, let me ask what you're working on now. Do you have another big project in the works, another book planned yet, or is your day-to-day keeping you plenty busy? Yeah,
1: thank you for asking. Um, at the center, uh, we're engaged in a number of projects, which are, I, I think, exploring these questions and themes uh, at the next level. Uh, we're doing a national survey of employers on their hiring practices uh, and how they view credentials. And uh, as you asked about, how they view online credentials and, and how that's changing over time. Uh, we're also meeting with employers around the country uh, to understand the value of uh, work based learning and uh, internships and, and practical experiences. That's been another trend, even with the online credentials, is because. Employers value experience and real world application as much as they do an academic credential. They're increasingly focused on those types of experiences uh, uh, with students. There's also developments in the policy world. Uh, certainly, a lot's been changing in, in Washington, D.C., and also with state governments, uh, where many governors are pushing for apprenticeships and alternatives to college as the college market has has flattened and so we're we're in a very turbulent time where there's a shift happening. Um, I'd argue it's happening slower than many have predicted because these are all cultural dynamics and there's very ensconced uh, worldviews and, and practices and protocols and regulations that are in place uh, that make a, a rapid change uh, harder. but certainly the next the next five or ten years is going to be, fundamentally very dynamic uh, for both colleges and universities and for all these other providers that have entered the mix.
0: The book is The Future of University Credentials. I've been speaking with Dr. Sean Gallagher from Northeastern University. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's it's very dense in a positive way. I, I don't mean that it's heavy or or difficult to read, but each page had really interesting references and stories. And I kept making notes throughout of things. I need to go back and and look up the scholarship that you've incorporated into your analysis. So congratulations on the book. And we look forward to speaking with you again about your next project. Well,
1: thank you so much.